I don't know whose water bottle this was down front, but it just got stolen. So, <laughs> Merry Christmas. Uh, yeah, you're welcome. Okay, see, it was you. Okay. If you have a Bible, turn with me into Philippians chapter 2. And uh, what we've kind of been doing for the Christmas season is we've been looking at what the Apostle Paul has to say and how he applies the advent of our Lord uh, to our lives. So we looked at a passage in Galatians, and we looked at a passage last week in Ephesians, and this week we're looking at a passage in Philippians that specifically deals with the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the coming of Christ, and why it's important. And uh, let me read our passage, Philippians chapter 2, and starting in verse 3, all right? Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 3. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let us pray. God, thank you for uh, this morning of worship, and now we just, we come to you with this scripture, this passage. We pray that it might reign over us, that it might point to Christ in us, that it might lead us, if we're not believers in Christ, to a place of faith in Christ. I pray for myself that you would not let me detract from the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus, but that this sermon, in every form, in every way, would honor him who came to save us. Amen. Jesus would go on to say in his earthly ministry in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever himself, whoever, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The critical thing that we learn in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus' coming is that the way up is to go down in humility. That we should, as Paul says here in our passage, we should do nothing from selfish ambition, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, 
but also to the interest of others. God says that the powerful, transforming principle of life is to humble ourselves, is to be people who choose humility over pride. Now, when we talk about humility, it's important that that we kind of outline what we're talking about because humility can mean different things to different people. And so what we mean at Crosspoint, what we think biblically, when you add it all up, what is humility? Humility is two things. Number one, it is acknowledging that if I have anything good in my life, it comes from God and not myself. Amen? I am acknowledging that anything good comes from God. That's the first step in humility. The second aspect in humility is that if God has given me anything good, it is to be used to bless others and not myself. That's the two pieces of humility. If I have anything good, it comes from God. And once I recognize that I have good things, I am to use those good things for the benefit of other people before myself. That is humility. Humility. We've got to learn humility. And Paul is looking at the incarnation of Jesus, and he says that there are lessons that we can learn so that we can be humble people. And so when we come to Philippians 2 and we ask ourselves, okay, what does it teach me? How do I walk in this humility that that God wants me to have? The first thing I would say is this. You say, I want to grow in humility. I want to be more of a humble person. The first thing is, you've got to know when pride is messing with you. Can I get an amen? amen? You have got to recognize when pride is messing with you. That's the first step. Because here's the reality. When we're born into this world, we are not naturally humble people. We are naturally proud people. We are proud beings. We are born in original sin, the original sin of Adam and Eve. And the original sin of Adam and Eve was not you, it wasn't us, it was me and mine and I. That was the sin of Eve. That was the sin of Adam. And that is the sin that we are all born with. We are not born with the capacity to think about others before ourselves. We are born only with the capacity to think about ourselves. To say that if I have anything good, it's because of me. And if I have anything good, it's not for others, but it's to prop myself up. You see, you've got to know when pride is messing with you. I say, well, what is pride? Well, he says here in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. You see those two words? Selfish ambition or conceit. What is selfish ambition? Selfish ambition is when we do everything out of a sense of rivalry. Everything I do and everything I see is about competition. How can I appear to be more important than him or her? How can I appear to have more than them? Everything I do is out of a sense of competition. It's always, you see, my worldview is there's going to be a winner and there's going to be a loser. And I'm going to make sure I'm a winner. That's selfish ambition. That's Rivalry. 
The second thing pride is, is it's conceit. Selfish ambition or conceit. In the old translations of our Bibles, it says vainglory. It is a vain glory. It is an empty sense of importance. It is the idea that I know everything when I don't really know as much as I want to appear to know. That's what conceit is. It's, it's I know everything, and I have to feel like I know everything, and yet there's so much I don't know. Does that make sense? Have you ever done that in your life? You just felt like, I need to, I need to, I need to voice myself here. I need to grandstand here so that other people will look at me and, and think that I know something. We preachers know something about this from time to time. We always have to have all the answers. I've done this in my pastoral counseling. People will come and talk to me, and I always feel like I've got to be important through my knowledge. I always got to have a perfect answer to everybody's problem. When I early in my marriage, of course, I don't do this anymore, but early in my marriage, I remember Sherry used to look at me. We'd be sitting on the, on the couch, and she'd be explaining to her some kind of, uh, of issue she was struggling with or, or, or emotion she was having where she was down, and I was always trying to give her like a solution. Well, you could do this or you could do that, and she said, you know, Josh, you don't always have to have the answer. You could just listen. Hmm. That helped our marriage. Amen. I'll just listen. Here's, here's the freeing thing. You, you see why God wants us to get rid of pride? Not just because he wants us to feel guilty or, or feel defeated or feel condemned. It's because he wants us to be freed from having to know everything. And to having the power to say, I don't know. The moment that you are in a place where you know what you know and you know what you don't know is the moment when you become teachable. You have an empty hand. You begin to come and say, I've got to learn. I need mentors. I need teachers. I need people in my life to bring into me knowledge that I don't know, to give to me principles and wisdom that I don't have. Those are the moments of power in our life, not lacking power. I don't have to be good at everything. I went and saw Star Wars the other night. Amen. Wow. And you know what I noticed? Nothing has changed. Stormtroopers still could not hit the broadside of a barn. I mean, why can they not just kill them? You know, like they have these big guns, they got lasers, they couldn't hit anything. They always miss. And I think, Stormtroopers need to go to target practice or something, right? That's how I am. I told you last week how horrible. I shoot a gun like a stormtrooper. And somebody said, have you gone to YouTube? Have you, have you picked up a book? Have you learned something? You see, vainglory or conceit is the inability to say, I need to learn. God says that humility is when you know what you don't know. When you know what you don't know. You see, you got to know when pride is messing with you. That's the first day. You say, I, I want to be and I want to grow in humility. I, I need to grow in humility. Know when pride is messing with you. Here's the second thing is have the mind of Jesus Christ. Have the mind of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 4, let each of you 
look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. By the way, I don't have enough time to go into that verse a lot, but I really like that verse because he's not saying that your own interests are completely unimportant. He doesn't say, never look out for your own interests, only look out for the interests of others. He says, don't just look out for your own interests, but look out for the interests of others. God has a way for all of us to win together. God has a way for you to win and me to win and both of us to have transformation, to have victory together. You see, don't just look out for your own interests, but for the interests of others. But here's the key verse, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves. Church, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's right. What is that saying? That's saying that we have the mind of Jesus Christ. I got to tell you, this is a little spiritual and theological, but I got to tell you what that verse is saying. That verse is saying that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have come to a place in your life where you say, I'm a sinner, Jesus is the Savior, and I am sick of my own life, and I'm going to exchange my unrighteousness for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I'm going to exchange my filth for his goodness. See, by faith, I become a Christian. I'm not born a Christian. The church doesn't make me a Christian. The Holy Spirit makes me a Christian when he awakens me to Jesus and I place my faith in Jesus Christ. Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? The moment that happens, the Bible says something powerful and transforming happens. We are now, by faith, united and, and, and connected to the very life of Jesus Christ. You are spiritually powerfully, resourcefully connected forever and ever to all of the resources of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's why he says, have this mind which is yours in, everybody say in, in Christ Jesus. Now, I believe that is the correct translation. Some translations say, have this mind in yourselves which is like Jesus Christ. That this verse is saying that Jesus is just an example. Like, look at Jesus and do what he does. Look at Jesus and do what he does. Do you see Jesus? He's born. He humbles himself to the point of death. He's buried. He gave his life as a sacrifice for many. He said, I did not come to serve, but I came to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Look at Jesus and do it just like Jesus. Here's the problem with that. I can't do it just like Jesus. Amen? I can't just look at Jesus and then go, oh, I'm sorry. I'm a moron. I should have been doing it like Jesus all along. I can't do it. You want to know why? Because I'm still sinful. I'm still in my heart, stuck on stupid. Right? I mean, get that part down. Don't let pride mess with you. You're still sinful, and so am I. And so the power of becoming like Jesus is not just looking at him, but it's remembering that by the Holy Spirit, I am united with the life of Christ. That mysteriously and powerfully and spiritually, by faith in him, I have resources that I can draw upon through prayer, through receiving scripture. I can draw upon the life of Christ and be empowered by Christ. 
say, what's that look like practically? What that looks like practically is it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, take your mind and take it to the life of Christ. What does Colossians 3.1 says? Set your mind on things above, doesn't it? The Bible says that you and I have the power to control our thoughts. We can think about what we're thinking about, and we can take our mind intentionally to the life and the truth and the word of Jesus and let that shape and form us. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse uh, 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 one of the verses in chapter 10. There it is. Verse 5. There was a scream. Thank you, Brad. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's intentional thinking. That is actively thinking about what I'm thinking about. When I'm driving down the car and I start getting messed with pride, I start getting conceited or start getting competitive or ambitious, I can say, no, 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 I don't have to think like that anymore. I can take that thought captive and say, everything I have that is good comes from God. I can confess that in my mind. And I can confess in my mind that just like Jesus, I can take all the good stuff God has given to me and I can use it to bless others and not just prop up my own ego or prop up my own agenda. No, I can take this thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Paul is constantly talking about the way to practice your union with Christ by faith is to get a hold of what's going on in your mind. Romans chapter 12 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We take our mind and we say, my mind belongs to Jesus and all of those thoughts of pride. All of those thoughts that that make it about me, I can say no more. I'm going to get attitude. I'm going to get attitude and say it's not about me, it's about Jesus. Because he's with me, he's in me, he's given me the Holy Spirit to do that. I read in a book uh, recently, John Piper said that pride is manifested in two ways. Here's a couple of thoughts you can take captive to the obedience of Christ. He said pride is manifested in two ways. He said, number one, pride is manifested in boasting because of success. So if I'm successful, let's say, I have no examples. Let's say I go to the gun range and I start shooting really well. I start boasting. It's because I'm so great. It's because I'm so smart. I've figured this out. Or, see, boasting is pride in response to success. But here's the surprise. This is where it gets tricky with pride. Pride can also be self-pity because of suffering. Self-pity because of suffering. Because what I can do is I can say I'm suffering. And I deserve more. I deserve more. I shouldn't suffer. People shouldn't treat me this way. She should have never said that. He should have never done that to me. I deserve so much more. See, self-pity is a wild manifestation. 
pride. And Paul is saying we need to take those thoughts captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. And say about our success that it's only because of God and his grace. And to say about our suffering, God will work all things together for his good. It wasn't about me in the first place. I will continue to walk by faith. I will not give up the truth. I will not walk away from my relationship with God. I will walk closer into him because of my suffering. And he suffered for me. Therefore, I can suffer in him. I can take these thoughts captive. I can have the mind of Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then Paul goes into a wild expression of what exactly he means by the person of Jesus Christ, by pointing to the work of Jesus Christ. In fact, exegetically, it needs to be said that verses 6 through 11 are the composition of a hymn that was sung by early Christians. Here we have in Philippians 2, one of the first ever hymns or songs of praise that was lifted up by congregations in the early church. And Paul is copying and pasting this hymn into his letter to Philippians. Is that the coolest thing ever? I mean, you are reading, beloved, a public document from the first century of what Christians sang in response to Jesus and his gospel. And this hymn has an expression of the work of Jesus Christ. Let me just break it down here phrase by phrase. He says about Jesus, whom we are united with whom we have resources from, to be humble. He says, who though he was in the form of God. What does that mean? That means that Jesus pre-existed before the incarnation as God. That the person of Jesus Christ and the life of Christ did not begin when he was born of a virgin, but that Jesus has no beginning He is eternally and always has been the Son of God. He was in the form of God. John chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the form of God. He pre-existed as God. And I have to say, based on that very idea, that makes Jesus' humiliation, his his decision to be humble even more powerful, doesn't it? Because he was strong. And let me just say to you, biblical humility does not come from a position of weakness. Biblical humility that is powerful in our life comes from a position of strength. Being humble doesn't mean I'm being weak or I'm somebody's floor mat or I'm like, I I was no good in the first place, so I might as well just lay down to everybody. I might as well just give up all my rights because I don't deserve the rights. No, no, no. God wants to give you some rights and give you some stuff in Jesus Christ so that when you're humble, it's from a position of strength. Jesus preexisted as God and his humiliation was a decision he made out of his strength. 
God wants you to be strong. Can I get an amen? God wants, you, God wants you to be victorious in Christ. God wants you to be more than a conqueror through him who loves you. And it's from that place of strength, just like Jesus, that we have the pre-existing condition needed to be powerfully humble. He says, look at Philippians 2 and verse 1. He says, for if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit... What's that saying? He's saying that in Christ we've been encouraged. In Christ we have been loved. People who can't be humble are people who begin to think that they're not loved. You are loved. You're greatly loved and encouraged and comforted in the salvation and in the love of God. And from that strength you no longer have the need for others to acknowledge. You no longer have the need To be so important, you can easily serve others from a position of strength. Just like Jesus. It's not like Jesus came down because he was weak. He was like, I already have everything I need. So I can freely give my life. I can freely humble myself and come down and save these poor, miserable, wretched sinners. I can come and forgive them. Jesus was God. He pre-existed as God. He was in the form of God. It's such an important statement because that means that the very first Christians acknowledged the deity of Jesus Christ. That's very important. He was in the form of God. Yet it says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now what does that mean? The key word is the word grasped. In the Greek, this word grasp means to seize or to snatch. Right? It's a seizing. It's a snatching. I'm going to take. I'm going to get. And what it's saying is, is that Jesus, being God, being equal with God, he knew that the nature of God, that the manifestation of who God is, is not a snatching or seizing nature. That the very nature and attribute of God is not to take, but it's always to give. God has existed in eternity past as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And in that eternal community of three persons, one God, they each person in that Godhood has been giving and serving one another. And Jesus knew That being God did not mean staying up in heaven when there was a need for sinners to be saved. That being God was something that didn't grasp, but being God was meant being a giver, being generous. In fact, everybody in the history of the Bible who has tried to take and be God and to grasp at being God ultimately fall because... They don't understand that being God isn't grasping or seizing. It is, in fact, giving. Isaiah 14 describes the first one who tried to become God by grasping. Isaiah 14 describes the fall of Lucifer. In Isaiah 14, verses 12 and following, it says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, here's pride, I will ascend to heaven. 
above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high God. But you were brought down to Sheol in the far reaches of the pit. What happened to Lucifer? He said, hey, being God is something to grasp at. Being God is something I'm going to ascend to. Being God, I'm going to take, in fact, I'm going to get even higher than God by reaching higher, grasping and seizing. And what he didn't realize is that the moment that you try to be God by grasping is the very moment that you will fall. Not much longer after his fall, he came to Eve. And what does Genesis 3 say about Eve? says that through pride she became a taker. The serpent who had fallen said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said, you surely shall not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took, everybody say took, she grasped, she seized for herself. What a contrast that is. To Jesus in Philippians who says, being God is not about grasping. Being God is about giving. It's not, the hymn is not saying that Jesus is somehow being a really nice guy. The hymn is saying that Jesus is simply being God. In fact, Jesus is proving that he is God by knowing that equality with God is not a thing to be grasped. Jesus proved that he was God because of his decision to come down to save us. Jesus is manifesting his deity because he did not seize. He gave, and God is always given. This is the nature of God. This is the difference between the true God and all false gods. All false gods will be selfish, will be seizing, will be grasping. All false religions will be seizing, will be grasping, will be fighting, will be killing, will be reaching, will be doing, will be working, will be achieving. You see, all of those false religions and false gods prove that they're not God because God doesn't do that. God gives. God abundantly gives. And that's how Jesus proves that he's God. And that means that as his followers, our life is not to be about grasping. Our life is not about seizing. Our life is about giving. Humility is not just saying, hey, all good things I have come from God. Humility is also all good things I've been given are to be a blessing for other people. I will not seize them for myself. He's in the form of God. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. I love that phrase. It literally means emptied. It literally means he poured himself out. He gave everything he had of himself. He didn't just kind of come down and sort of give his life. He, He poured himself 
out. It's a phrase that emphasizes a 100% effort on his part to save us. When I played basketball and I had a good game and ESPN came and interviewed me afterwards. That might surprise you. You're like, now you're being prideful. Now you're, now you're, being, you're being filled with vainglory. No. But you know what you say as an athlete? You say, I left it all out there on the court. Isn't that right? And Jesus emptied himself. Some theologians in past and heresies in the past have taken that phrase. It comes from a Greek word means it says kenosis. And and the kenosis theory is, is that Jesus, when he was born of the Virgin Mary, he became less than God. That he emptied out his divine attributes and became more man than he was God. And I gotta say to you, that is exactly what it's not saying. What it's saying is that he never stopped being God, but he added God human nature. And what it's saying is that as God, he chose to give his whole life expressed in the death on the cross for our sins. And he provided atonement. We give ourselves. What is humility? It's 100% emptying ourselves. And when we have the mind of Christ, that's what we do. Not only did He emptied himself, but he took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. The likeness of men. This means that he took on all of the weaknesses and all of the full capacity of what it is to be a human being. Jesus didn't cheat. Jesus didn't take a shortcut. Jesus didn't say, you know, I'm God, and I'm going to become man. I'm going to go down there and save them from their sins. But I'm going to kind of choose the easy way as a human being, not the hard way. Where was Jesus born? He wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a manger. Amen? And when he was laid down, he was laid in a feed trough. How many of you guys are, 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 are freaked out about germs? Right? I know there's germaphobes out there. You're like, I have to clean before I shake anybody's hand. I mean, now at churches, you have to. You've got to take hand sanitizer. Please, wash your hands with hand sanitizer before you hug me on Sunday, especially in flu season, right? <laughs> but imagine this. The very son of God, born in a manger, he was put in a feed trough. You know what a feed trough is? It's where the donkeys lap their tongues to get water. It's where they eat their food. It's where they grab their hair. Can you imagine the the donkey slobber that's in that feed trough? Jesus came and he was made in the likeness of man. And he didn't take any shortcuts. In fact, he chose the way of being a man that was the most difficult route. In a manger, in a feed trough, so that he could come and save you and I. Romans chapter 8 and verse 3. This is such an interesting verse. Romans chapter 8 verse 3 says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. 
Now, when it says the likeness of sinful flesh, that does not mean that when Jesus was born fully, 100% human being, that he was born with a sinful nature. But it does mean that he was born with the weakness that comes to human nature because of sin. So we read about Jesus that as a human being, he had to develop. We read that that Jesus as a human being had to learn. He had to go to synagogue and ask rabbis questions, Luke chapter 2. It means that Jesus had to depend upon a mom and a dad to provide for him. It means that Jesus had to sleep and rest because he physically got tired. It means that he got hungry. Jesus loved to eat. Everybody say, loved. He loved him some fish. He loved to sit down and, and eat bread. He loved to drink wine, no doubt in moderation. Jesus was fully human. He took on the likeness and the weaknesses and all of the frailty that comes with human flesh, yet without sin. And Hebrews chapter 4 says that he was tempted in all ways as we are, and yet without sin. So he even experienced temptation. He took on the likeness of human beings. We are united with this one, so giving, so identifying. Ultimately, not only did he take on the likeness of our weaknesses in his birth, but he took on obedience even to the point of death. I have to read to you. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. It says, consequently, when Jesus came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. An eternal covenant was established between the Father and the Son in eternity past. And the Father knew even before the creation of the world that you and I would be sinners in need of a Savior. And in eternity past, the Father said to the Son, I have a plan to save humanity and I am commanding you to go and to save them. And Jesus said, according to your will, Father, I will empty myself. I will become obedient to your purpose to save miserable, wretched sinners. By becoming a human being to die on the cross, I will obey all the way to the end. And you remember what he said in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, not my will, but your will be done. I will go and I will die for them, even though I know the suffering and the pain and the separation that this will create in my own existence. This is Christ, and we have the mind of Christ. By being united to him, we have the resources, the person who can guide us in being humble. Let me read the rest of the hymn really quick. It says, therefore, God highly exalted him. Now, notice that Jesus humbles himself, and we humble ourselves. It is the sovereign will of Jesus to humble himself. It is the human will of our lives to humble ourselves. And the moment we do that, you see what happens is is that God highly exalts Jesus and bestows on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. 
having taken on human flesh. He's now exalted as a human being to the right hand of God. He's still the physical son of God in heaven, having ascended, always represented all believers. How can I be represented by Jesus in heaven? By faith in his name. By faith in his name, he represents me in heaven, and he is the name above all names. And the Father says, I am in covenant with the Son, and all who believe in the Son, I will be in covenant with them. Sons and daughters of God in Christ are represented by the name above all names. But one day, he's going to come back, and even though he was born the first time in a manger, he's coming back a second time on a horse. He's going to come back, and everybody's going to be raised from the grave, and everybody, believer and unbeliever, is going to see the glorious, wondrous King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God-man, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who was pierced. And everybody will confess with their tongue at that moment that Jesus is Lord. And unbelievers, right before they go into hell, forever separated from God, they will say, Jesus is Lord. And everybody who is with him, who are his children, will say, Jesus is Lord. And we will all sing that he is the greatest ever. And what made him the greatest ever? What makes him the name above all name? That in eternity past, he was willing to become a baby. He was willing to humble himself. And we have the mind Christ. By faith, we are united to this one. Amen. That's my introduction. Here is my sermon. You see, you have the exhortation. Don't let pride mess with you. And then you have, you have the mind of Christ. And here is the application. I got to go through it quick because the kids are going to sing here in two minutes got two minutes to preach this sermon. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, whenever you see that word in the Bible, therefore, you got to ask, what's it there for? Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That is, it's a Accountant term, work out, like calculate, like add it up. If you're a Christian, add it up. Add up what this might mean for you. Work it out in fear and trembling. Take this seriously. Take Jesus seriously. Take your Christian life seriously. If you can take Star Wars seriously, you can take Jesus even more seriously. Amen? If you can take a football team serious, you can take Jesus even more serious. Amen? If you can take all these other important things, a gift that you might receive or give at Christmas series, you can take Jesus serious too, can't you? Paul's like, don't don't, don't waste this awesome opportunity. Work it out. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God has worked into you some stuff, and all you got to do is take what he's already given to you and let it out. What has he worked into you? Humility, power, victory. He wants you to work it out. He's like, what's that mean? I need practical application. I am tired of all this theology this morning. You're just up there. You're yapping, yapping, yapping. All right, verse 14. Here's what humility looks like in practice. This is how you can measure if you're humble or not. He says, number one, do all things without grumbling. Or disputing. What is grumbling? 
Grumbling is murmuring. It's complaining. It's the Israelites in the wilderness, isn't it? And they're convinced Moses has led us astray down into this wilderness. And in Egypt, we had such great food. We had it so good back then. Murmuring and complaining and grumbling. And you know what that is? Pride. It's conceit. Because grumbling is about complaining about all that's wrong and you got no solution. Humble yourself. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Always wanting to pick a fight. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So not only is humility not grumbling, but humility is the decision to be an influence for God. I will be an influence for God. I, I, my life will point people to God and to Jesus in real ways. Verse 16, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. In other words, I'm placing my hope and my sense of identity and my sense of neediness in the hope of Jesus coming back and giving me everything I need plus more. I can sacrifice everything in this world. I'm holding fast to that word of the gospel. It will be perfect there. And since I know that what he is bringing is perfection, I don't have to have perfection all the time, every day in my life. He says in verse 17, even if I'm poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. What is humility? It is the decision to rejoice. And being happy and being grateful is a decision. Amen? You get to decide. I will rejoice. He goes on to say in chapter 4, think about things that are worthy of praise. You have the mind of Christ. You can work out this salvation in your life. Amen.